Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn Podcast. The podcast where we, Jennifer and... Kalia. Two book nerds talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Two warnings. This podcast uses barnyard language. Why limit ourselves to only nice words? Some things warrant not-so-nice words. Also, spoiler warning. We will be talking about the endings of both book and movie, so prepare yourself. Okay. Let's get into it. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. will edify. It's the Pages of Popcorns Podcast. Special guest. Burn gonna talk, so you better damn well listen. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pages and Popcorn podcast. Today, I am joined with my good friend. His name is Sean. I'll tell you more about him in a minute, but first, a couple of real quick announcements. As you already know by now, you can find information about our show, including blogs for every episode with show notes and links and sources and trivia and the YouTube preview for the movie and affiliate links where you can buy the book and ways to support the show with Patreon or buying us coffee or buying stuff from our store. All of that can be found at kmmamedia.com. Just click on the Pages and Popcorn podcast link at the top of that page. Also at the top of that page is a link for the Ghostthropology podcast, which is another podcast, which is part of the KMMA Media Podcast Empire. And it's about folklore and ghost stories. It's kind of cool. And I'm not actually on it, but I do produce it and I can vouch for it. It is cool. So go on and check out kmmamedia.com for Ghostthropology and Pages and Popcorn podcast. And of course, you can find us on Facebook technically on Twitter, but don't bother, and on Instagram. So check us all out in all the places. And now, on with the show. <laughs> Very quick and dirty intro there, which is the way we like it. Today, I am joined here on Zoom with my friend Sean. So hi, Sean. Hi, thank you for having me. This is very cool. This is very cool. I'm very excited. If Sean's voice sounds familiar to you, dear listeners, it's probably because you listened to his podcast or because you listened to the little promo thing I did on this podcast for the time when I was on his podcast. And we'll talk about his podcast at the end of this episode. It's a very cool podcast. It's all about movies. So Sean is like a, a movie expert person. Sure. Yeah, sure. We'll, go with that. we'll go with that. And he's going to talk to us today about Minority Report. Minority Report, the 1956 science fiction novella by American writer Philip K. Dick, first published in Fantastic Universe, and then made into the 2002 American science fiction action film directed by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Cruise. For those of you who skipped the recap, this is your time to start skipping. Here is my book recap. John Anderton is the aging creator and head police commissioner of the pre-crime division in which three mutants called precogs predict all crimes before they occur. While showing his new young second-in-command, Ed, around the premises, Anderton is shocked to receive a report that he, Anderton, is predicted to murder a man within the coming week. Believing that Ed has framed him in order to steal his job, Anderton tells his much younger wife, Lisa, another police official, though he soon suspects that she and Ed may be joined in this conspiracy against him. 
Knowing that a copy of the report is automatically sent to the army as a safeguard, Anderton rushes home and he's suddenly abducted by armed men and brought before Leopold Kaplan, a retired general and Anderton's expected murder victim, although the two have never met before this day. General Kaplan hears Anderton's plea, then hands him off to police custody. Along the way, a traffic accident allows Anderton to escape and then contact a friend at pre-crime to inquire about a, quote, minority report, a type of dissenting opinion in which one of the three precogs predictions conflicts with the other two. Indeed, a minority report does exist in which Anderton would refrain from murdering Kaplan once he became aware of the prediction. Anderton is now in a catch-22 and must decide whether to remain silent, turn himself in, or to speak up about the minority report, thus revealing a flaw in the otherwise perfect system. This could discredit the entire pre-crime system. Dun-dun-dun! Lisa successfully convinces Anderton that no conspiracy is taking place and demands at gunpoint that Anderton turn himself in until an army soldier attacks her. They subdue the attacker and discover that the military is trying to weaken pre-crime's credibility and even stage the earlier traffic accident to allow Anderton to escape. No longer certain whom to trust, Anderton carefully listens to each of the pre-cog reports individually and then goes to an army rally where General Kaplan is moments away from reading aloud Anderton's minority report to the public showing how countless people may have been wrongfully arrested through pre-crime system. Suddenly, Kaplan notices something that causes him to flee, but surprisingly, Anderton draws his gun and shoots Kaplan dead. Anderton is arrested, and both he and Lisa, as his accomplice, are scheduled for penal transportation to another planet. Before they leave Earth, Anderton explains to Ed his reasoning for shooting Kaplan. After obtaining his precog reports, he realized that all three were minority reports in a way because each described three entirely different situations rather than a single situation with two possible outcomes. It dawned on Anderton that each report after the first was based on him having knowledge of the prior reports. The first report suggested that he would kill Kaplan to prevent pre-crime from being discredited and shut down. The second report suggested that after reading the first report, he would decide not to shoot Kaplan in order to avoid arrest. The third report suggested that Kaplan was planning to discredit Prime crime in order to enact a state of emergency and martial law, resulting in a military coup in which the army would replace pre-crime, leading Anderton to the decision that he had to assassinate Kaplan after all. Viewing this very confusing thing as the lesser of two evils, Anderton decided to follow the path predicted in that third report and go ahead and kill Kaplan. The entire situation has thus become a self-fulfilling prophecy. As Anderton and Lisa are about to be transported away, Anderton warns Ed, who has nervously inherited Anderton's job, that the same predicament could happen at any time to him as well. The end. And then they made a movie. And they were like, this is a novella. We better make it longer. So we're going to pad it up and add a bunch of stuff. And here's what happens in the movie. In April 2054, the federal government is planning to incorporate Washington, D.C.'s prototype pre-crime police department, which prevents murders through three clairvoyant humans or precogs who are attached to a computer that pre-visualizes what they see. Would-be murderers are then imprisoned in a benevolent virtual reality state. Almost all premeditated first-degree murders have ceased as people have, quote, got the message. However, spontaneous crimes of passion are still problematic as the police have limited time to intercept the killer. 
Enter John Anderton, Tom Cruise, captain cop of pre-crime, who thwarts a spontaneous murder in our opening scenes using a mix of awesome technology and his own super cop abilities. He and his super cop team are able to figure out who the killer is and where he is and bust in to save the day in the nick of time. John is very good at his job. Why is he so good at his job? Well, turns out that John's six-year-old son was kidnapped and assumed murdered before pre-crime was up and running. This led to John's divorce, and he now self-medicates with drugs, purchased in a bad part of town from a blind drug dealer, and watching old home movies to really wallow in his sads. But again, he's really good at his job. Someone else who seems really good at his job is the DOJ agent, Danny, who is there to audit pre-crime. John doesn't like or trust Danny, but Danny serves as a great audience helpmate by getting the entire system explained to him, us, him, which is nice. On his tour, we learn that the three precogs, Dashiell, Art, and Agatha, live in a milky pool in a place called the Temple. Breadcrumbs are dropped here, the religion versus science theme that we will talk about in depth later. Also, we see that the precogs have flashback nightmares of the murders after the fact, and the texts just delete them. After Danny leaves, John actually has an up-close and personal encounter with Agatha, who draws Anderton's attention to the ceiling, which displays images of a woman being murdered. Intrigued by the murder, which he's never seen, John decides to investigate. This means a trip to the detention center, where the, all the would-be murderers are kept in suspension and taken care of by a dude who likes to play the organ. John learns that the other pre-cog images are on record, but Agatha's recorded images are missing. Also, the woman who was killed, Anne? No details about her whereabouts can be found. John visits his mentor and co-creator of pre-crime, Lamar. He tells Lamar about the discrepancy. Lamar seems unconcerned. Oh no, the precogs have predicted that in 36 hours, Leo Crow will be murdered by an actual predated murder by John. Oh crap. John is investigating. He realizes that the shooter is him and he's able to move the little visual screen away so that nobody knows. Uh, the text says he'll give him two minutes to run. Everybody runs. John flees the area, and Danny and John's former team of rocket-packed SWAT-like cops begin the manhunt. There's a lot of chasing, including a whole jump out of your self-driving car while it's on the side of a really tall building and jump and run and almost get caught, and then there's contortionists, and then we got to jump and run some more, and it's Tom Cruise doing his best Tom Cruise-y stuff, being all action hero, running and jumping and jumping and running and escaping, and he manages to lose them in a car factory and then drives the car and leaves the city. He goes to the estate of Dr. Iris Heinemann the other co-creator of pre-crime technology, who is pretty much a witch in the woods surrounded by carnivorous plants, and she reveals that sometimes one of the precogs, usually Agatha, has a different vision than the other two, a minority report of a possible alternate future. John has a plan now. If he can download Agatha's minority report, he can prove that there is a future where he doesn't kill Crow. But traveling undetected is super difficult because in this version of the future, everybody is constantly subjected to retina scans at all times. So John visits a shady doctor, former con, and receives an eye transplant. He awakes to discover that the pre-crime team is investigating the building he's in. The team dispatches spiders, which are little tiny robot eye scanners in the various rooms, and they have to find and ID everybody. And John tries to hide an ice bath, but is caught by a bubble. And then, oh my gosh, thankfully the, the spiders all go all, all over his head and he opens up his eyes and is he going to be blinded is he not going to be blinded and they scan him and oh it's okay they don't know that it's him the surgery has worked he makes it to pre-crime headquarters and using his removed eyes that he's carrying around in a little plastic baggie gets into the temple to kidnap agatha there are a few shenanigans involving eyeballs rolling down the hall yep 
that happens. Okay, so he's kidnapped Agatha. He's shutting down the whole group mind precog system. Right now, anybody could murder anybody, <laughs> but nobody knows. So anyways, he takes Agatha to a hacker slash entertainment VR guy who accesses Agatha's vision of the murder. The vision is identical to the one that John intercepted himself. Also, Agatha starts playing Anne's murder again, but stops just short of showing us the killer because the pre-crime cops are now here. Time for more running and escaping. But with the help of Agatha's precog abilities, they manage to slip away and find themselves at Crow's apartment building with only minutes to go before the murder is set to happen. John and Agatha go up to Crow's room, and despite Agatha being like, yo, we could just leave, like run away, don't kill anybody, John is on a mission, finding numerous photos of children, including his own disappeared son, Sean, John understandably freaks out, and when Crow arrives, he confronts him. At first, Crow is like, yeah, I killed your kid, and John is like, okay, I'm going to shoot you, but then he doesn't. The timer goes off and uh, he decides that he's going to arrest Crow instead. But then Crow reveals that it was all a setup and he's being paid to trick John into killing him. So now John is horrified and Crow doesn't know who hired him. And despite John trying to reason with him and calm him down, Crow commits suicide. Agatha and John flee the apartment. Danny, meanwhile, and the pre-crime cops arrive and process the crime scene. It looks to Danny like there's an orgy of evidence which makes him suspicious. He finds the case that, Aunt, that John was working on before the whole thing started, the murder of Anne's death, and he realizes that there are two attempts on her life, the first having been stopped by pre-crimes, but the second occurring minutes later, sort of a reflection of the first having succeeded. Any tech who sees the second will assume it's a flashback of the first and delete it. The only person high enough to make something like this happen is Lamar, who after hearing Danny's theory shoots him dead. Remember, the precogs are offline because Agatha isn't there, so Lamar is feeling pretty proud of himself right now. He leaves the gun, John's gun, at this crime scene and fucks off to continue being a bad guy somewhere else, and John takes Agatha to his ex-wife, Lars, and they regroup. John is still freaking out that there was no minority report and that the images were correct, but the actual killing was not a murder. He also puts two and two together and realizes that Anne was Agatha's mother who was trying to get her back from creek crime, and that is why she was killed. He tells all this to Lara, and then the pre-crime cops show up, and they help him, arrest him, they halo him, arrest him, and put him into suspended animation and into the detention center. They replug Agatha back into the milk pool, and it looks like Lamar has gotten away with everything. But wait! In a conversation with Lara, Lamar accidentally reveals himself as Anne's murderer. Laura makes up for hardly being in this movie by rather awesomely using John's bloody eye to get into the detention center and freeing her husband with the help of his gun. And then the two of them expose Lamar at the pre-com celebratory banquet by playing the full video of Agatha's minority report slash Lamar killing Anne. Lamar admits that pre-crime could not function without Agatha's. That's why he killed Anne following an actual attempt on her life that he had arranged knowing the murder would appear as an echo with the pre-crime and be ignored. A new report is generated at pre-crime indicating that Lamar will kill John. John points out the dilemma. Killing John will validate pre-crime, but Lamar will get sent to detention. And sparing John will discredit and shut down the program. John also makes the salient point that people, regardless of the system, can change their future once they become aware of it. Lamar agrees, and to avoid both detention and political reputational suicide, commits actual suicide. 
Afterward, the pre-crime system is shut down. All the prisoners are pardoned and released, although many remain under police surveillance for years. John and Laura get back together and she's pregnant, proving that even in the future, heteronormative family values and short and happy endings involve marriage and children being born. And as for the precogs, they are sent away to an undisclosed location to live out their lives in peace. The end. Sean, hi. Hi. <laughs> I will give you a chance to talk, I promise. No, it's fine. First questions first. Had you yeah. heard of this novella before I was like, let's do this? And had you seen the movie? Tell me your minority report journey, if you will. Sure. So I, I saw the movie in the theater back in 02. I would have been junior or so in college. Saw the movie, really, really liked it at the time thought it was really weird and interesting and futuristic. And I, I always like the, the problem with kind of future movies is when the tech gets too, like when you're, when you're still kind of too close to where we are, like we're you know, in 40 years, we're going to have truck cars that can go up the sides of buildings and stuff, eh, whatever. It's fine. <laughs> um, but I remember really enjoying it. And I didn't know it, uh, for a long time that it was based on a, on a book Honestly, probably until we reviewed it for the, for my show about a year ago, when we reviewed Minority Report, and I read that it was based on a on a novella by Philip K. Dick, and I was like, "Oh, that's really interesting." So this actually gave me a really great um, excuse, opportunity, whatever you want to look at it, to read the story because I had never read it before. So I, like you, saw this movie in the theater, and I was I will admit I was blown away from at the time i thought it was super cool and i loved all the future stuff and the world building i don't remember if i already knew that it was based on a book or i found out that it was based on a novella around that time but my dad's a big sci-fi guy and we had philip k dick's books in the house and this is in a it's in a collection and so i feel like if I hadn't read it, I had at least read other books in that same collection before seeing the movie. And, but I thought I must not have read it because I don't remember reading this story. And then of course I had to go find it again and read it. And I was like, oh, that's why I didn't recognize it. It's, it's similar, but very different. <laughs> so it's the same thought idea, but taken in a very different, in a very different place. So yeah. And then it was just on my list of things to do. And so I reread it and rewatched it for this and and here we are. Some of the interesting things about the book, let's talk about the book first, is the writing style of Philip K. Dick. Have you read other Philip K. Dick stuff? I have not. I, I, I haven't. He's, he's one of those kind of sci-fi authors that I've, I've somehow missed. I've read, well, and to be fair, I've only really been reading books for about, let's see, I'm 39. So for about 15 to 20 years. I, I hated reading in high school and uh, middle school. My, my parents would literally bribe me with, with presents to read, and I hated it. And then I was handed just the right thing, and it, 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 from then at point, it just kind of took off, and then I just was reading all through college and, and after. I was just getting anything I could read. Since then, I mostly consume books, audio uh, like audiobooks. And so I've been, the last book I consumed was the uh, book four of the Dark Tower series Ooh. Uh, from Stephen King. Very cool. Did you listen to this? Is this even available on audiobook or is it? I don't know. I, I did buy the book. I went out and I went to Amazon and, uh -huh. you know, I went to Amazon and bought a book 
How weird is that? <laughs> okay, so I, I just, I have to know, what is it that someone handed you that changed you into being one somebody who wanted to read? So I was always a little bit fascinated with history. I was always a fan of history. There was a time in high school where I thought maybe I would go, I would actually use, um, have like a history. I always wanted to go into music, but maybe have like a history minor and think, you know, if the, I was going to be a band director at the time. So if maybe that wasn't going to work out, I could be a history teacher. I loved history. And my friend uh, turned me on to this book. The author is named Harry Turtledove. And he does alternate history. He changes one thing, one, one small thing, and then extrapolates mm-hmm. you know, from, from there. And so the, the one it was, that I read was called How Few Remain. And it's about, this is the true part. Of the, this is the true part. In, during the Civil War in 1862, yeah, 1862, when General Lee was doing his North campaign, he invaded essentially Pennsylvania. And the Army of Northern Virginia, uh, Army of the Potomac, the Northern Army was kind of trailing them, but not really knowing where they were. And they left camp, the Northern, the Lees left camp, and they left literally the map where they were going wrapped around cigars. This is true. And when the Union scouts came in, they found the camp and found the map and then sent it to the generals, who then used that map and forced the Battle of Antietam, which uh, was the bloodiest day, single day in, in American history. And it, it weakened Lee. And then, so when Battle of Gettysburg happened, Lee was significantly less uh, strong and therefore lost that, mat- that battle and would eventually lose the war. So that's what actually happened. So in the, the, the novel, those cigars are picked up. You know, some guy goes, oh, hey, sir, you dropped these. Oh, man, that had been bad. <laughs> and so the idea is that the South wins and wins their independence. Oh, wow. Uh, by winning the Battle of Gettysburg, and it allows the French and the British to acknowledge that the CSA is a sovereign country. And then when they come in, it turns into, it, it becomes harder for the North to win. So they end up winning their independence. And then from there, there's a, it's like a nine or 10 book series of World War One, and then the Depression, and then World War II, but with a divided United States. Interesting. So, so the, the really interesting part is that the United States needs allies, right? Because now that the CSA has England and France, so they look to the only other superpower in the world, which is Germany. And so when World War I breaks out, the United States is on the German side. Huh. And so they end up winning. So as a result, Hitler never becomes power because they won. Mm-hmm. And, and so he creates, but that vacuum exists, that, that evil vacuum exists. So they create it and as a person from the South and creates the concentration camp and persecutes the blacks. Interesting. Okay. So alternative Sorry. history. No, that's Philip K. Dick. Uh, have you heard of man in the high castle? Yeah. Yeah. If that's your jam, man. I know I need to, my, my buddy, uh, one of the guys that does on the podcast, he loves the show and he's been trying to get me to, to read those, the stories for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Cool. I have like a personal anti-World War II thing, which is a long, stupid rant that I won't bore you with now, but at some point, <laughs> some point okay. I will, I will bore you with my rant about World War II. That's cool though, that you 
alternative history. So alternative history falls under speculative fiction and speculative fiction includes so many things that is hard sci-fi as well as fantasy. And I always think that it's fun when you have futuristic stuff that blends hard sci-fi and fantasy like this. This is speculative fiction because we have the hard sci-fi of the, of the technology right? You know, all of their different, especially in the movie, not, we have a little bit technology in the book, but it's, you know, it's not quite as fleshed out because the novella is so short, but then you still have a little bit of this stuff we don't really understand that seems little um, hand wavy, magical precog, you know, see the future kind of people with special abilities, mm. which, and I know that science is, you know, magic is what we call science. We don't understand. So there's like that kind of blending too. But I, I love that in this book and movie both, which leads me to the precogs in the book. Have, do you remember how they were described? They're like mutants. They're like strapped in chairs and they're just, they're revered as these things that no one cares about. Yeah, I thought it was interesting. And not only they had the huge heads, they, they lacked any ability to do anything and they are not even seen as human. It says they're kept in the monkey block right? Yeah. There's this really, and I thought that that was an interesting way to say, it's okay to use these living creatures for our own purposes, because they're just monkeys. They're not, they're animals. They're mutants. Sub like you said, they're idiots. Yeah, yeah. Subhuman. Exactly. And the movie definitely played on that a little bit more by saying, actually, no, they're people. They were, you know, children, they were abused. Like they deserve to have rights and to have a happy ending. And so, yeah, but Speaking to Philip K. Dick and his his yen for certain things, history and, and mutants and such, he also had a big thing about paranoia and the, the basically about government corruption and getting into privacy as a as a major component. Well, I mean, yeah, definitely. Like, especially in this where you have this John Anderton compared to the movie is significantly more paranoid and he's and he's it seems such small potatoes to just be paranoid about his job that this guy would come in and try to fake a, a murder so that the precogs would see it just so that he could get his job. Mm -hmm. And and I remember think, reading it thinking that seems such so in, inconsequential. It's like, he's just after your job. Like it just seems like a really hard thing to do just to get a job. Mm -hmm. But maybe in this, this future jobs are so hard to come by. And I think I took that as that he was so obsessed with his own stuff that he couldn't think big picture until big picture like, hit him in the face, right? Until somebody spelled out to him that there was like actual government corruption, you know, conspiracy. And I feel like, I mean, there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of meat in this very short story and in the movie too, but there's this idea that we're obsessed with the things that affect us more than the big picture. And sometimes for for the betterment and sometimes for the ill of the big picture right it yeah. kind of made me uh, not appreciate anderton in the book but at least i kind of sympathize with him a little bit that he was like so <laughs> almost blindsided by the fact that there's bigger things at play what <laughs> you know <laughs> it's not all about me what <laughs> no. But but also he was he was very worried that his wife was cheating on him. Yeah, that was pretty instant. I mean, again, the book doesn't give us a lot of backstory. It's not like we're getting, you know, a lot of backstory where he thinks, well, there was that, you know, that time where she didn't answer his call. And like, we don't get any of that. We just literally get, oh, there's my wife. She's probably in on it. Yes. Oh, OK. I just 
Well, I, you're not. Yeah, he he does seem very um, self-important. That he I mean, this is the job that he created, and so obviously he feels very beholden to it. But it also just comes across as selfish. Isn't just the right word. I mean, he is, but self-absorbed is, is probably. And again, yeah, you're right. Paranoia. Just it it would seem to be that he would probably be paranoid of anyone in that world. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, literally, she was just standing in his office and uh, slim Lisa, they called her slim multiple times. That was her defining characteristic was that she was younger than him and slim. And he was old and balding. And so I was like, Oh, okay, so (laughs) this is a man who's going to feel threatened no matter what. (laughs) I'm gonna I have to sidetrack. Have you ever did you ever watch Will and Grace the TV show Will and Grace? Yes. I loved Will and Grace. My wife and I watched it all the time. And there's a, a towards the end of the series, they're mad because Friends is offline. It's off off the air. And so Jack and, and Karen are trying to figure out what they're going to watch. And he's like, well, let's just see what's on TV right now. And he goes, bad guy, skinny wife, bad guy, skinny wife, bad guy, skinny wife. <laughs> they, they've run out of ideas. You know, they're just so that, that's what that reminded me of. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. That's that very much King of Queens. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, grounded for life, mm-hmm. still standing. Yeah, a lot yeah. of those things, which is, again, not really what this episode of this podcast is about, but an interesting <laughs> social point about who's writing these shows. Is it the fat guys or the skinny wives and the the laugh tracks and who's the butt of the... Yeah, no, there's a whole there's a whole other thing about that. I'm sure we could we could do. But anyways, so yes, yeah, Slim Lisa and, and Anderton's paranoia. Of course, we still have the idea of like the, the greater good versus, you know, your selfish needs. Um, selfish, not like in a bad way at this point, but just like your personal needs versus the greater good. And, uh, you know, I think it's interesting that Lisa's the one who's like, hey, you know, the system is more important than you at first. And then he kind of comes around to that idea. But he had, you know, and, and I don't know, I don't know personally where I stand on that. It's a fun ethical little dilemma there, along with the idea of three people who are not going to have the same kind of quality of life. If they can be utilized in a way to prevent crime is like, you know, at what point and who are the people? And it, it definitely gets into kind of a thorny, more murky little place about ethics. And I thought that the book did a decent job of trying to trying to kind of do that well and, and also that because the book does describe the the three precogs as mutant and subhuman as we've already mentioned they're barely characters in the book mm-hmm. so the the ethical dilemma is more towards in the book to me more towards the people that could be falsely imprisoned more than them yes i think the movie puts a little bit more emphasis on on the care of, of them. I mean, the caretaker guy is hanging out in the milk water, you know, you know, being uh, borderline creepy. creepy. Yes, definitely. But yeah, you're right. In, in the original novella, I, I don't really feel like Philip K. Dick was overly concerned. The mutants were there as a plot device to make precog a thing. It was the yeah. way to hand wave and say, we have this ability and I guess we have to have a reason to have it. So we'll make it this subhuman thing that nobody will care that much about. Yeah, because that's not that's not really the point. The point is this wonderful system that saves you from lots and lots of all crime, all crime. All of the crime. Yeah, they do everything. 
just thinking of the enormity of that, because the one thing that I liked about the movie is that they limited to murder and to a square mileage, right? There hasn't been a murder in DC. Mm -hmm. Could you imagine that these three, I mean, they say in the book, they're just constantly spitting out. It's like a constant flow of output. And I don't, I don't know if this was a nationwide thing, but I don't remember if it was or not, but I mean, well, in the but, book, it's New York, and it definitely felt more widespread. Yeah, I don't and know. I think they, because they made reference to, like, the cities are bigger or something, because mm-hmm. there was a war. Um, it kind of reminded me of, like, I, I was getting, like, a feel like Judge Dredd, where you, like, you have these massive mega cities. You Like, mm-hmm. New York is actually the size of New Jersey and all the way to Massachusetts kind of a thing. So, right. But still, yeah, I mean, just the fact that they're just constantly spitting out information would just seem... Yeah. Well, I mean, talk about overstimulation and something that the movie did where they, they, I liked it too, where it was limited in scope, but they, one of the driving forces of the movie is that it's about to get voted on whether or not it should become a national thing. And I kept Mm. thinking, but then wouldn't you need more precogs? Like, wouldn't you need more of these people? And these were the only ones that you had and they're really precious and it didn't, and they were they were created kind of by accident, you know, like how could you even replicate this even if everybody wanted it? So yeah, I don't know, but they don't, they don't really get into that in the movie too too terribly much. I felt like the voting thing was basically just there so we could have a fancy party at the end. So the climax could be, I think it's supposed to create some stakes because the book Reno is heavily on the system. You know, is it, is, is one person more important than the system? And so the movie does that too a little bit at the end and we need to have some stakes for the system that we're not just gonna if it does if it fails the system fails it's not just gonna fail for dc it's gonna fail for the country yeah and now because of some actions by a few that we're gonna descend into the purge or something i guess i don't know yeah well well and it was interesting too because at the very beginning of the movie they were like look at all of these murders it's an epidemic you know, and so like, this is a thing, this is how we're, we're going to solve it, you know, here in Washington, D.C., and it's been six years, and now we're going to expand it. And so you're like, oh, okay, so they're trying to do something, who knows what the rest of the country is looking like with this, you know, murder purging happening everywhere else, but whatever, they don't matter. <laughs> it's just Washington, D.C. And then, of course, that little, that little witch's cottage out in the woods somewhere near Washington, D.C. that you can drive to, I don't know, somewhere in Virginia, maybe. I guess there's there's lots of Virginia space out there. It is kind of thinking like, see now my my brain's doing the dumb thing that I, I actually hadn't thought about for the movie before is like if it is you know limited to the district, is it like the delivery zone for Domino's? You know like <laughs> you know like someone calls nine one one, they're like, hey, there's a murder happening. I'm like, well, we can't really help you because you're technically outside the zone. You're gonna have to use regular police. You know like. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. Yeah, right. Well, and then also, if you were, let's say, a, a baddie, right? Oh, I mean, let's say like organized crime, not just, you know, cheating wife, murder type person, but like you really wanted to kill people on the regular. Wouldn't you just move your operations to Delaware or, you know, Idaho? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. all science fiction falls apart when you think about it too much, but, but, whatever it's fine because we're supposed to be focusing on the thorny ethical questions not necessarily the the minutia but yeah i do want to talk more about the movie because there's just so much more to talk about in the movie is that is that yeah okay i love i okay tldr i 
I really liked this movie when I saw it. And I actually really liked it when I watched it again earlier this weekend. I really liked the whole noir look of it. Mm-hmm. So and I, I, as we were watching it, I was like, why are the colors all wonky? Like, they're not just wonky in some scenes. Because you know how, like, sometimes that's a thing. Like, in traffic, right? In these situations, the color is blue. But when we're in Mexico, the colors are brown. Whatever. In this movie, the whole thing was kind of silver. And I looked it up, and they actually did a thing to the film in production to make it look like that. And I just, I really liked it. I thought that it was a very subtle way of creating, like, a mood in the whole movie yeah definitely i mean yeah i think the only the only the only times i remember there being true full color saturation is like in his flashback memories with his son when he's at the pool Mm -hmm. in fact the color red only shows up in memories and dreams which is fascinating and i or the red ball the red murder ball that's the only other time that red is there and that's they're like these little tiny things that filmmakers do that You know, I I don't know if you're supposed to notice them or not, but I like them. (laughs) I liked it. So this is directed by Steven Spielberg. And so as far as it being, this very much feels like a Steven Spielberg movie, right? It it, it just has that feel. There's some humor. There's a lot of good action. There's a broken family. He really likes those broken families. Yeah. Yeah. And not just the broken family, but like the main character is is very flawed. You know, Mm -hmm. the fact that he's, you know, doing the drugs and stuff he's he's a he's a broken guy but he's still very confident in his job and he still believes in the system yeah it's i I don't know i i like this movie a lot i think it's a lot of fun i like the chase scene is pretty cool and entertaining i i there's just something kind of neat about the idea that like even the police that are chasing him like they never use lethal force they always use like those little um i don't know what you want to call them little pulse weapons that knock you down and yeah, it's like a, it's not an energy force, it, but yeah, it's some kind of concussive something. And then the other thing they had was they called them sick sticks yeah. and they would touch you and then you'd throw up. I was like, that's fucking brilliant. It's both awesome and terrible at the same time, because if you're too close to somebody, you're going to get, you know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, I don't know if I had to pick between being tasered and sick, it'd be hard, but shot and getting sick i'll pick getting oh, sick sure, every yeah, day yeah. right yeah so i just and even like when he was running from them at that one point john you know is is fighting off that all of his little guys in their rocket packs which were hilarious and awesome at, also at the same time and you know he's got this one guy and he's gonna let go but in order to make sure that the guy doesn't like fall to his death he says to him are you hold on are you holding on like do you have a good grip because even running away he doesn't want to kill the people who are after yeah. him he just wants to get away from the people who are after him and i just like it's small but it's important you know it makes us identify and root for him in a way that it wouldn't if he was just killing them all well and it reminds you that he's still a cop who still believes that he's innocent and that if he kills one of the cops he's no longer innocent he's mm-hmm. he's trying to get back to life he wants to go back and be a cop but he can't obviously if he murders you know one of his fellow guys and plus these are dudes that he, he he's fought yeah. you know like he's he knows them and so He's certainly not going to, maybe not the uh, the Danny character, uh, Colin Farrell. I don't think he probably would yeah. care too much if he punched that guy in the face a few times. But Okay, so speaking of Colin Farrell's character, I really enjoy it when a characterization is surprising, but 
it's not a heel turn. Like you're not like, oh, that doesn't make sense why that character would, you know, suddenly do that. Like his character to me felt very authentic. He was like, I'm here to audit. And he he kind of is like questioning pre-crime. And you can't really tell if he's for it or against it at first. And he's asking these questions and he's instantly set up as the antagonist to Tom Cruise, right? You know, he's the other guy. Especially if you've read the book or know anything, you're like, okay, he's this this guy, he's the antagonist. But then he's a cop and he's like looking at this, the, the, you know, the murder scene of Crow. And he's like, this is an orgy of evidence. I'm going to follow the thing. I'm going to, you know, and he, I, I almost expected him at one point to start chewing gum and to like, you know, roll up his sleeves and whatever. But I, I just, he didn't get into caricature of, of cop guy, but he, I just liked him. I liked him a lot. And then when he was killed it was a little surprising i remember being surprised when i saw this in the theater i was not expecting him to die i thought there was going to be more of a him versus john anderton towards the end because they had you know been this cat and mouse chase thing going on between the two of them earlier on yeah no i totally agree it did kind of feel like there was going to be some kind of showdown whether or not anderton defeats him you're not because like you said you're not really sure he's the bad guy ever but you know he they certainly do kind of make him come across as this arrogant guy who's from out of town no one likes him and he's bossing people around he's very handsome he's the prettiest person in in on the film i mean he's prettier than most of the women in this movie so <laughs> so like you well could- i mean because there's 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 lara and the and agatha so Sure, but yes. <laughs> well, and the witch lady, you have her. I'm, oh, <laughs> sorry, I I apologize. Yeah. You're right, the witch. Yeah, this <laughs> can't is... forget her, Iris. Yeah, this is. Who the... oh, I didn't catch that her name was Iris until I was looking it up on IMDb, and I was like, oh my god, <laughs> they probably should have just named her Planty McPlanty Face sure. and called it a day. <laughs> yep. I like Planty McPlanty Face. That's pretty great. She kisses Tom Cruise. She kisses uh, John at one point, ran out of the blue. And apparently that was an unscripted kiss, which, I mean, your mileage will vary about kissing unscriptedly and how y'all feel about that. But I, I just, I, I thought that was an interesting, that actress was like, you know what? I'm an old lady. I'm planting McClanty face and I have a chance to kiss Tom Cruise and no one's going to stop me. That's right. <laughs> By God. You go, you go planty. That's right. But yeah, no, Colin Farrell. I, um, his death was very surprising. And I love the fact that right after Lamar kills him, he's on the phone with Laura and she's like, don't, I don't trust that Danny guy. And Lamar's like, yeah. It's <laughs> like, oh no. <laughs> very good. Very well done. And I like the breadcrumbs that were laid in, you know, like John is researching this murder and, and they've already laid in real early. It's almost like this, this one-off, you know, line about, oh, it's just a, an echo and, oh, just delete that. And the tech deletes the little file and you're like, oh, okay, blah, blah, blah. And then that comes up and that's a really important whole point of the whole movie. And I just, I thought it was very well adapted and very well written. I also do find it kind of far-fetched that, when they said, oh, that's just an echo, delete it. Like they have the power to d- just delete something that could be potential evidence for something else, you know, like, oh, it's just an echo. Well, why don't we take a look at it? Maybe there's more information there than we've gotten before. Like, it just feels weird that they let the technician, you know, just delete it. There's there's something, you're not wrong. It, 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 it makes the plot more intriguing, mm-hmm. but it does kind of feel like, I don't know. I, I work for a community college. I can't get rid of anything. You know, like I have to take <laughs> notes and reports about everything. And I just, and I work in IT. So yeah. I don't take care of people in milk, obviously, but you know. So you say. 
I feel like mm, it was well. just like they put it in some kind of weird recycle bin, you know, like the trash on your computer screen that you never you never dump. Um, so technically it could be there. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what, that was one of the things that I thought was kind of obviously that when the book was written, they they didn't quite have the idea. We had no idea of, of hard drive space and and storage. They, he used the word tapes. Mm -hmm. He has to go back and, and break reels. into tapes. And punch cards. Yeah. And, yeah, which is fine, right? There's, I don't, I don't care about any of that. But, but it's a physical thing, so it makes kind of getting rid of evidence almost, I guess, almost harder if it's a physical thing. I guess I don't know, maybe not. But also, but also in the book, there was built-in redundancies because it was there, but everything was also at the army because the army was watching. So there was like this, this like checks and balances. Whereas in the movie, we really didn't have checks and balances because the the army trying to plan a coup was just not part of it. So that is a little bit unbelievable that there wouldn't be some kind of checks and balances. And the only kind that you could imagine is the Department of Justice, which is Danny, who shows up and they're like, screw this guy in his fancy pants, you know, outfit like they don't like him. So, yeah, yeah the only really check we get is that they have judges that are on standby on like the Avengers monitors <laughs> that are in the background. You don't really see their faces and they turn the monitors 90 degrees so you can see them in portrait. And so they're like, hey, what are we seeing? And he can just cut their call off yeah you know so it's again there's a little more of that but i think you're forgetting the most important redundancy is that oh. something is etched in wood so well, you know that's a foolproof method <laughs> yeah no one will ever take the wooden ball and go play croquet with it or anything although okay the wooden balls, there's a reason they were used. And I do want to talk about technology, but this is interesting. So there's a famous claim by the philosopher David Hume that has to do with observing billiard balls, which these balls looked a lot like billiard balls, um, that you can mm -hmm. actually demonstrate the cause and effect does not exist, but is merely a habitually created fiction of the mind. So I feel mm. like the balls were partly an homage, an homage, homage. there you go, to, to that. Yeah, which is cool. Again, there's a lot of little things in this movie. And okay, but before I get into those kinds of things, the technology, I just want to stick with this for a minute because anytime, like you said, anytime you have a futuristic movie, you run the risk of it looking dated within like five years or less, right? And so sometimes less is more because then it, the movie like lasts longer and people can suspend your disbelief and whatever. And so I'm watching this movie and I don't miss social media at all. Like that's not a thing you're like, oh, they didn't you know, account for that, blah, blah, blah. But I did really like that they had thinner screens. They had these little flat things. I love the fact that he like freaking Chromecasted his little pictures you know, from here to there with like the wave of his hand. I mm -hmm. love the whole hand wavy virtual reality going through your files and stuff. And this was before Iron Man did it. Now, Tony Stark didn't need gloves and John Anderton did, but I kind of dug his gloves. I thought it was cool. It made like the technology feel more quote unquote realistic because he wasn't just mm -hmm. waving. It wasn't in his brain. It was, there was literally metal things that were manipulating. I love the little spiders that, you know, that go into people's houses and look at people's eyes. I love the the, I mean, I don't love the idea, but the the technology of those little retinal scanners everywhere, and there was and the, the the cereal box that has a commercial that is constantly playing, and the the gap that tries to sell you extra pants because it recognizes you. My husband said this was the most intrusive and annoying future ever. <laughs> because, and he's, Which it sounds, I mean, you know, 
I mean, right now, as we sit here in 2021, you and I can think about buying new pants. And then when we pull up uh, Facebook, there'll be an ad for the gap on our mm-hmm. phones. Pants. Yeah, it's because so. this little robot thing right here is listening to everything I say. So for sure. <laughs> but I, I just I really liked that their world was futuristic, you know, but it it didn't seem insanely futuristic. It seemed kind of within the realm of 50 years futuristic. Of course, in this version of of the future, people are still watching the television show Cops. People are still shopping at Radio Shack. I don't know if you caught the Radio Shack (laughs) was there and going to shopping malls, which, uh, you know, we'll see. We'll see what's happening in 2050. (laughs) If there's, (laughs) I don't know about shopping malls. There's still, there's no more Radio Shack. I think Radio Shack was gone pretty quickly after this movie came out, actually. So. Yeah, I was yeah, I had a few more years of life left, but yeah, 2010 or so yeah. about the yeah. RIP the shack. Yeah, and the the technology again, you're not you're not wrong about the technology of the movie. It it's not too crazy. It's a lot of fun kind of the 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 jetpacks kind of made me laugh because it's very obvious it's just dudes on string, which is fine. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's practical effects and the little the little flying ship that the, their jump ship that they all come out of is it's kind of neat. It's a, it's a little weird looking. I mean, we, we, we've mastered obviously hovering at this point. And so then of course, then you're like, well, why can't cars hover? But again, okay. No, see you disparage these little self-driving up the sides of the walls, cars earlier. And I'm just going to say, I freaking love them. When we were started to watch this movie, I was like, I don't really remember too much of this movie. I think he waved his hands around and there was like a bald chick who saw the future. And then as soon as we started, I was like, no, I remember this. I remember this. And as soon as he got in that car, I was like, I remember this because seeing it on the big screen, when he comes out of his freaking car and it's sideways on a building and there's all the other ones and they're like zoom, zoom. oh my gosh dude that's okay i love it <laughs> i love it so much no it's a cool scene i'm not disparaging it i just think we're not gonna be anywhere close to that in 40 years my oh. point is that I think yeah no we're gonna be closer to uh, did you see i robot yeah with will smith i i mm-hmm. like the idea of the cars in which our tires are balls instead of you know oh yeah wheels, you know and so that you can maneuver better and, you know, like, I kind of like that idea a little bit closer to where I think we're actually going to go than on the sides of buildings. I just, I mean, that's a major infrastructure change and, you know, we have potholes on my street. So yeah, I'm with you. Like it's not, yeah, exactly. but I, I hate the idea of flying cars. Flying cars give me such anxiety because people fucking crash cars and three dimensions i can't even oh sure oh my god no no <laughs> imagine a fourth no I, i'm totally with you i don't think you know flying cars should uh, i mean i don't know i no. maybe eventually but by that point they're doing it on their own yes self-driving cars and then flying cars see we just have to have it progress appropriately progress. yes there we go mm-hmm I do want to mention that we haven't mentioned this yet. So there's a couple of funny things in the movie that I, that I really love some actual humorous moments, right? So Peter Stormare as the surgeon is the, one of the best like character casting bits ever. Right. Cause uh, he's my favorite devil uh, in Constantine. I, I love him so much, but <laughs> him as this, I, I love the line where he's, he's got a cold, he's got snot coming down his face. It's just so disgusting. Oh, and, you know, Tom Cruise looks so grossed out and he goes, I'm going to put so many antibiotics in you that I could sew a dead cat into your chest and you wouldn't get an infection. Like, I love that line, mm-hmm. but he's so good. And of course, 
we just have to be mean to Tom Cruise, right? You know, he's he gives him a glass of milk and a sandwich in the fridge, but he doesn't take out the old one of those things. And so when he goes into the fridge, he eats the rotten sandwich and drinks the the milk that's who yeah, knows how long. Okay. I, mean, I okay. Forget the puke stick. That sandwich <laughs> is gonna make you throw up. That like you said, very Steven Spielberg, right? You know, there were like these weird moments of levity and that one was fine. I was like, it's gross. It just kind of goes to like showy, you know, the character building here is that the doctor doesn't really care, but also that Tom Cruise is like, is suffering, right? He's suffering right now. He's, he's lined and he doesn't, you know, he's like at his wit's end and now he doesn't even have something yummy to eat and depriving somebody of milk is a, is a capital sin in my book. So, okay, that that's fine. But there was a couple other moments of like the humor where I was like, oh, that's a little low hanging fruit. I did not particularly like the eyeball bouncing down the hallway. <laughs> I I just I was like, no, no. <laughs> just, and it's it's not just a gross thing. Uh, I mean, it was gross, but it was also like, I don't know. It I feel like the humor of the bouncing eyeball then diminished the levity and like the, the seriousness slash grossness slash surprise aspect of Lara then using the other non-bouncy eyeball to um, to get into the detention center and save him, yeah. right? Because like she's touching someone else's eye and it's like in a baggie and it's gross, but that's been diminished now that we know that these, these they bounce around and like, I don't know, it just, it, not yeah and the part that that you know and of course i have to kind of uh, and again those who are listening to your show who've not who don't know me very well those who are listening to this from my show know that i i i nitpick and i do things just to be annoying sometimes and here's the thing i can't i can't let go first of all the first thing as soon as john anderton is identified as a suspect the first email that gets fired off is to the is the IT security team to stop his access. There's no right reason why his eyeball should still let him in the building. Right. And and then after they catch him, his eyeball still let him in the building. I don't, you know, and then mm-hmm. the other part that I, I love the, the actor. I can't think of his name right now, but the organist. Is it, was it Gideon? What's his real name? Yes, Tim Blake Nelson. Yeah. So anyway, so when she walks in and she's like, you're not supposed to be here. And then she sets the eyeball on the organ uh-huh. and the organ's making a noise, but the eyeball is not depressing the, the, the <laughs> like, Okay. Like, and the idea that, cause it's a discordant chord, right? It's a chord. Uh-huh. And it's yeah. like, that yeah, eyeball you... is not playing four notes. It's, <laughs> that's a magic eyeball really what that is. i know this that is eyeball the, has tendrils <laughs> yeah, and this is the stuff that i i think about i apologize no i i know i'm with you there i okay but speaking of the organ because we're here now so he's playing church music um actually at one point earlier the music in this movie is freaking great at one point tom cruise is uh doing his stuff to the the unfinished symphony which i thought was pretty good but no the, the, he's playing organ he's playing church music and they're all of these people like it's it's is it heaven or is it hell they've all got their little halos on but they're trapped in their own you know virtual reality suspension thing and it's unclear if it's actually like 
a nice thing that you're seeing or not a nice thing. We know the government in this movie lies because it has told the whole public that the precogs are like happy and they have a gym and all, yummy food and blah, blah, blah. And no, they're like, you know, trapped in a milk bath. So we don't know what, what you're actually experiencing when you've been haloed, but we do know that people don't want it. And there they all are. They're all being kept there for some reason. Detention center, not prison, but trapped. And and it's not the only religion moment in this movie, right? So there's there's several. So there's this interesting dichotomy between science and religion and the natural world and science. And, the, and it's all kind of playing off each other. So for example, Danny's character says that he had one, was going to be a priest, but now he's a cop, you know? The old lady with the pipe has ashes on her forehead, like Ash Wednesday, you know, which is a very Catholic thing. When Danny is shot, he kisses his little medallion before he dies. There's this whole thing about the, the precogs are in the temple and there's people who like have deified them. Like I said, you have the witch out in the woods, you know, with her magic plants, you know, saving John from poison. But the main thing that the main religion aspect overtone is the idea of predestination, right? Mm -hmm. Because this whole point of this movie is, is your future set in stone or not? And that's like a very thorny religious subject. And depending on which sect of Christianity. I'm, I'm sticking mainly with Christianity here because that's the one I know the most about, you know, predestination that there's like reformations and there's reasons and there's dogma and there's fights about it. It's mentioned in the Bible, but then it's, then there's something called double predestination. I mean, it's like a huge thorny thing that a lot of people don't even want to talk about nowadays, but it is a major component of religions. And, and it felt very you know, Matthew said Calvinistic, a lot of the stuff in this movie. I, I don't know. It was just fascinating. So the fact that it's not subtle, these religious overtones with playing the freaking organ music and all of that is added in. None of that is in the book. And I, I think it's great. And there's also, you have to think about the role that water takes in this movie. Water is a character in this movie. Whenever there's the presence of water, something is going to happen. Mm -hmm. The water is the cause of, of a death. And then water is also where the precogs live. And then John tries to escape from the spiders. And like, there's water everywhere in this movie. And, and his son was kidnapped at a pool. Yeah, his son was kidnapped at a pool. Like, water is a huge reference theme throughout this movie. And it's just, uh, and, and I think it's raining. Obviously, it rains at the escape. I can't remember if it's raining at the at the end when. It is because they're looking at the rain. Because one of his, his memory of his wife is her saying, stop playing with technology and come and look at the rain with me. So it's this whole, again, the thing about like, don't touch the technology. Let's enjoy the natural world. Let's enjoy the present as opposed to being focused so much on work and the past or the future and like all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. It is. Fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> so many layers to this movie. Like you could watch this movie and you're like, oh yeah, big dumb action movie of Tom Cruise hides in a car. But no, man, there's, there's elements, there's layers. Okay, there's this huge theme about privacy and security, right? So we have the spiders, these little things that come in and they scan you so they you know they know where you are. And the 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 shot is in this apartment building and it's beautiful and it's not computer. Oh cool. It's so cool. Oh yeah. It's they built this set and the camera's moving up and in and around and different apartment complex, you know, rooms and stuff. And people are like living their life. They're having sex. They're arguing with their spouse. They're, you know, feeding the kids dinner and getting them ready for bed and all of these moments of true life, but they have to pause because of the spiders. And 
it's still problematic. Like there's definitely a mom there who's like not into it, but a lot of the people have just like accepted that this is what happens. This is part of our normal life that at any moment, the government can come in and like scan us and know exactly who we are, where we are, who we're with, what we're doing. People have given up their right to privacy for the idea of security yeah, well, outside of the pre-crime, you know, reading into the future thing. That's, you know, I mean, yes, these are pre-crime cops, but, but like all those little scanners everywhere you go at the mall and on the trains and your car being controlled and all that stuff is outside of that. That's just people being like, I just want to be safe. You can watch me because then I know that I'm safe. And I know we're really struggling with that at a societal level, like right now of what our phones should or shouldn't know about us and, you know, what can and can't be tracked and, and all sorts of stuff. And I, I do think that there's a line that's crossed in this movie, movie's future. I mean, basically at some point in the future, the violence got so bad that enough people said, I'm okay if you suspend the fourth amendment. Because that's basically what they've done. So, you know, if you, I, I don't really care about the scanning your eyes so that you can get, you know, oh, are you here to buy more lingerie, Mr. Tanaka, or whatever it was. Because one, obviously it was, it was funny in the movie, but they do that. We get that now, but it's not with, you know, scanning our eyes. It's, you know, it's just your phone says, oh, I see you're at the mall. Do you want to buy whatever again? Or Yeah, but your, your own... phone says it to you like on the screen. It doesn't like say it to everybody within your proximity. I, <laughs> do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And for some reason, I kind of, it, it feels like in the movie, I don't know why, but it feels like that that's isolated to me, to the, to like you. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> they have, now we didn't have this in 2002, but they have it now where we actually have um, speakers that are so isolated in their ability to produce sound that they can, they're, they're actually starting to target these in, put these in malls and some other places. They can target advertisements on very specific spots of a floor, not just open into the store, but like as you're standing looking at the shampoo, you will hear above you, Try head and shoulders. It's a thing. And the person next to you won't hear it. Ah. And there's other there's other uses for it. And I'm not saying that that's happening. I'm just saying recently I saw in a, a tech magazine where, not a magazine, but an article that that's, that type of technology is on the way. So I see your point. The difference between privacy is on my phone and public of, oh, you're here to buy another sex swing. That's cool. Come on in. You know, I get the privacy aspect there, but the spiders is 100% invasion in privacy. They're physically coming into your home mm -hmm. and scanning you. And like you said, everyone in this movie is just like, all right. Like you said, the people are having sex. They just, okay, let's do the thing. Okay. You guys good. All right. We're going to go back to it. It's you're, you're right. It's the, the fourth amendment doesn't exist in this world. And that's, that's kind of sad. Yeah. It's very telling. And the fact that the spiders have the ability to inflict punishment. They can like shock you and stuff if you don't open your eyes and let them look at you yeah. is i mean where the hell's the aclu well obviously not here because they can arrest you for a crime you haven't committed yet <laughs> so yeah thorny 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 fun stuff privacy is such a a weird concept because i like personally i uh like go for jogs I go for fast walks in my neighborhood and I like the fact that my phone keeps track of where I am so that if something were to happen to me, like I fall and hit my head and don't know who I am or, you know, God forbid something worse, like, you know, there's, there's like 
some help, you know, available. But then I also find it inherently creepy that I talked about buying curtains once. And then for like three weeks, every Facebook ad and Google ad and Amazon ad was all about curtains. And I was like, I already bought my damn curtains, like stop. And also it's weird. So yeah. And, and, and we, as a society are still trying to figure that out. And it's interesting that in 2002, before really a lot of this stuff was in the forefront of our minds, this movie was kind of like saying, Hey, look, here's the possible way this could all go down. Creepy, right? <laughs> you know? yeah. They also have little uh, phone things. When you answer the phone, you put the little thing in your ear, but you don't see who it is that's calling you. And I was like, nope, that's not believable. People want to avoid phone calls. We want to know who's calling us so we can decide who to answer. Yeah. Back in 02, we were excited about phone calls still, <laughs> right? I mean, were we? I was. I mean, I, I wasn't. Yeah. Texting wasn't a thing yet. The only people that knew my cell phone number were my parents <laughs> and like my best friend. Because in 2002, a cell phone was a thing you kept in the car for an emergency. For me, I mean, because I lived in a dorm. I don't need a cell phone in a dorm. I have a landline in the dorm. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think I actually got my first cell phone in 2002. It would have been the summer because I was out and about on my own a lot. And we'd moved to a new town and I thought it was probably safer to have something with me so that if I got lost or, you know, whatever. Yeah. The first time I really started using a phone for more than just, oh my gosh, I have a flat tire. Let me call whatever. Well, flat tire is a bad example because I would just change the tire. But you know, <laughs> when I, when I went and did my internship, I was living by myself in a town I'd never lived in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I bought, I really, at the time, the, the really nice Motorola flip that had like three color screen. It was already was a, it was a full colored screen. It could play MP3s. It was so exciting. <laughs> and the first song I downloaded was uh, since you've been gone by Kelly Clarkson. Oh my God. I know. Right. <laughs> but you're not wrong with the idea that in this future, the cell phone is so small that it's just, just the thing that you stick in your ear. It just seems like, mm -hmm. like, how do you program that? Yeah. Because you still have to program. You still have to have number. How would you call out? Yeah. Like if you, if you says call Danny. Okay. But at some point you would have had to have program, to program a number for Danny. Right. Yeah. Now we're thinking about stuff. Seriously. Not okay. Not okay. I know. <laughs> and all I know, if I ever get those little Bluetooth head, I, I'm scared to get those little tiny headphones for when I, you know, with my phone or whatever, because I know I'll just lose them. That little tiny thing that he had was like so small. I was like, no, I would lose it like that. So no, 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 no. But yes, privacy versus security. <laughs> I always go back to the Star Trek version of privacy where you really don't have any privacy because your logs are accessible, even your personal logs. And they have technology where like the computer is always on and watching you. And like in some, depending on which episode of Star Trek you're watching, um, recording what's happening in your quarters. So yeah, but people don't seem to mind, but it's also like an idealized version where nobody would ever use this for evil. Yeah. But you know, that's, that's pretend that's fantasy. That's the fantasy part. There, of there also might be a little bit difference in the idea. I mean, what is the expectation of privacy on a naval battleship? Like right now, like what is the expectation of privacy on, on that? You know, like that's true. When but, you close I mean, the curtain on your bunk, is that it? Like, that's all you get, but otherwise you should, you probably don't have any privacy other than 
maybe on your phone if you're allowed not to get real picky here but (laughs) um star trek is not the navy it's not really a military thing it's a it's an armada for exploration that okay sorry If you're going to do it, I don't think Valley Girl voice works. You need to do like comic book guy. Oh, sorry. Um, I can't do that, though. <laughs> I'll yeah, work I'm, on it. We'll both push up our glasses. And there say, we go. Star Trek. Actually, is... Star Trek is exploration and there's families on the Enterprise. Exploration and a peacekeeping armada. It's, it's basically right. scientific based. I, I know. I am a Trekkie as I. Uh... Okay. I have some fun Star Trek overlap trivia, but. I'm going to save it for the end here. So um, let's see here. Another theme of the movie that wasn't in the book was the whole getting over loss. I like the fact that we don't actually solve Sean's murder or disappearance. We don't even actually know if Sean was actually murdered. We just know that he disappeared uh, before pre-crime became a thing. And I, I like that. I like the fact that it's not all tied up with a bow because real life is like that. You don't always get all the answers and stuff. So, and I, I liked that Tom Cruise decided, I liked that John didn't shoot him, that he went back to his cop roots and wanted to arrest him. That was what he decided to do. You know, I, I really liked it. But what I also really liked in that scene was that all of the visuals still happened right? Mm -hmm. The person said this, the other person said this, there was a gunshot, there was falling through a window. Okay, great. Those things actually all happened, but it still wasn't murder. It was suicide. I love that so much, but it really does undermine the whole thing that the precogs are doing because they're like, hey, look, a gunshot happened and then somebody died. Doesn't necessarily mean that there was murder, right? Your, your angle of the of what you're seeing is going to change your perception of what's happening. And that's just a really interesting concept. Have you seen those little visual things where it's like from this side, it looks like a six and from this side, it looks like a nine and like they're both wrong, but they're both right at the same time? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, there's that famous, basically it's turned into a meme where you have two people standing on the opposite sides of a thing. And then the, the, the caption is just because you're right doesn't mean that I'm wrong. Right. Uh, which actually, then the, then the new version of the meme is they've crossed that part out and says, if I could see things from your point of view, then I will see that we're both right. Or if we can see from each other's point of view is the idea mm-hmm. is that we're not say we're wrong. Uh, I do like, I, I love the composition of the scene. Uh, it does kind of get, I hadn't thought about it until literally as you were explaining it about the idea of kind of perspective, but then it kind of makes me think, well, then the precogs kind of suck if they can't tell the difference between murder and and the suicide. But it also makes me think that they're stealing, that they are taking the theme from the book and that now that John has seen the future where he says goodbye, Crow, and shoots him, then he knows, oh, I that's what my future says I'm going to do. But once he's in the moment, he realizes he can't do it. And he just, he just kind of starts you know crying and he just kind of breaks down. So it doesn't play out exactly as the vision says. That's the thing, like the, you can change. And I feel like that's not necessarily the precog's fault. I feel like it's the people who are looking at what the precogs see and interpreting it. Interpreting, sure. It's their fault. But the precogs still say murder. That's true. She does They don't say say death. Murder. Which is weird. So I guess my whole thing falls apart unless you take that little part of the movie out. So headcanon, she doesn't creepily say murder. (laughs) But yeah, I, yeah, it's, hmm. And also 
why why only murder i know the movie tried to be like that's the most unnatural thing ever and i'm like no no you don't watch svu yeah there's Um, other things that are pretty terrible like (laughs) svu is such a great example because my wife still watches it and i can't for those very reasons but like are there still serial rapists out there you know apparently it mean they literally said it only stops murder and i was like no 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 like it should be stopping all of the stuff right also it's not attempted murder. So at the very beginning, we see the, the husband, right? He's got the scissors, which definitely seemed like a, a shout out to dead again, but fine. Um, which was also like the screenplay was written by the same guy. There's overlaps anyways. But so he's got the scissors and he's like, how could you do this to me? Blah, blah, blah. And, he's, and he goes to kill the wife and they jump in right to, to stop him. That was freaking attempted murder because he wasn't completed, but he was literally about to stab her. That's very different then if you're premeditating you're like in a week i'm gonna cut sean's brake lines and then the pre-crime people show up and they're like kelly don't cut sean's brake lines and i'm like okay fine i won't cut sean's brake lines then that's maybe is conspiracy to commit murder but it's not attempt do you know what i mean like there's a difference and if you are shown your future then you're allowed to change your future which means you didn't actually do the crime so maybe the precog should just show you that the cops are onto you and and you well, shouldn't do it or like mental health like maybe instead of calling 911 let's call some some mental health people to come out and like help you through your problems so that you don't want to kill anymore or something i don't know it just seems like there could have been other ways to well, deal and with that's it. that's but. certainly the argument that the book makes right is that the book says mm-hmm. well i know my future therefore i'm not going to do the thing because i now know it my future has changed you literally change the future by knowing it and there, there is something to that. Just, you know, oh, he was going to commit murder. So we'll just send Tom Cruise out there and say, hey, you're, you're going to kill your wife. So we're going to give you the choice to not. So mm-hmm. how about you not, you know, or, or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Intervention would have been good. Yeah. I mean, Doc Brown said the future isn't written and the facts from the future disappeared. So basically, once we know what our future is, we can change it. I, I feel like that's that's a thing yeah right i do i do yeah definitely well gosh yeah absolutely i mean i think i think the avengers also proved that but maybe that's sort of too confusing they they sort of (laughs) didn't because they said if you go into the past which is now your future like you can't change your yeah (laughs) this movie did a better job of future explanation than that movie did but that's okay they're like where are you getting this information from back to the future time cop like they just list out all of the movies right (laughs) and then he's like die hard that's not one you know that's not one (laughs) (laughs) but you but you reminded me that there's another woman in the world that woman there who's uh who's having an affair on the dude who i mean could oh not, yeah 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 cheater could cheat he wife. not have been more obvious about what was happening like okay i'm sorry if you're gonna cheat on your husband please 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 for the love of god don't have your paramour just hanging out in front of your house creepily staring at your yeah, front in door. a long in a trench coat i mean he needs to just <laughs> next to a park with children like you're gonna get arrested yeah. for something i mean it's just a bad yeah. look dude it's a bad look yeah all of not okay you're, you're not wrong also, also, the guy had glasses, but we know that they can switch people's eyes out. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. Well, maybe not. Ever. I mean, you and I are both wearing glasses and, you know, LASIK is a thing, but you and I have chosen not to do that thing. Or it's not eligible or, for us. Uh, not that eligible, is true. You know. But still, I, 
but still it's, it's a little weird. Also speaking of eyes, there's so many eye things here. There's like all about looking deeper, right. You know, and your eyes can uh, mislead you and your perception can change based on whether you have information or don't have information or your angle in the room and blah, 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 blah. And like all, and like seeing her reflection in the mirror, there's a lot of eye stuff. And, um, John's drug dealer is blind. Yeah. He has no eyes. It's also kind of a weird thing that I felt was just kind of there to be there to be weird. But I don't mind. I don't care because I like this movie so much. I don't care. <laughs> it just felt like he was there just to deliver the line. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. And to be creepy. It wasn't to be creepy. Yeah. Yeah. In the in the world of the blind, the one eyed man is king. Or whatever. Yeah. They had to find a way to get that line. And so they hired Alex Cooper on a bad day and sent him in there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That is actually. I stole accurate. that joke from my husband. I'm giving him credit. Right. Yes. I really liked this movie. I like the styles and stuff. Okay. So. His motivations were very different in the movie. The ending was different. Well, the ending is very different because in the book, I mean, in order for him to to continue the system that he believes in, whether or not, and knowing that it's flawed, mm -hmm. but he feels that it catches more bad guys than innocent people. He's willing to do the one thing that he has never done, not only you know commit murder, but he's never even fired a weapon as a cop. Mm -hmm. which is interesting. And he just shoots the guy in front of a thousand people right in the face and then just walks over. And the other, and the other cops were like, I mean, it kind of reminded me, honestly, it kind of reminded me of a uh, demolition man. Mm -hmm. And like, they know how to deal with violent crime because they've never seen it. Mm -hmm. And so the, the cops just, okay, what just happened? He's like, all right, let's go talk to the boss now. And then they just going to send him on a, on a rocket ship. And he's going to go to, pluto or something yeah well he's being sent to like another he's basically but he's not being sent to the detention center right like he's getting yeah. away with something and not to i mean you don't have to pull race into everything but it's philip k dick so i'm gonna but like he's definitely like this like you know upper level middle class upper middle class whatever white dude who just committed murder <laughs> and like and then it's this very much old boys club that's like oh well let's talk about this and then like you you've protected the system so you you've martyred yourself so it's okay so we're gonna let you it definitely reminded me a little bit of Rebecca probably because I just watched it not that long ago where they're like oh let's have a conversation now and like blah 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 it, it yeah problematic for sure yeah you're right it it it, it it forwards their cause, right? Because they don't want the army to take back over. So they're kind of getting rid of a bad guy. I mean, it's, it's not just the fact that it's murder, but it is, but it's an assassination with a purpose. Mm -hmm. And the government kills people all the time that we deem to be enemies of the state. And they probably felt that he was an enemy of the state. So though, of course he doesn't get due process. He just gets a bullet to the face, but they, they, I do remember they said in the book that like, there's two options. You can either go to the detention center or you can be exiled to the outer rim. Mm -hmm. And and Anderson even said, I would rather go to the detention center, even though there are people there that he put there. He felt like that that was a mm -hmm. less, less real way to die. But I guess going to space or whatever, but he gets to go with his wife. Yeah. Um, so they're going to go to go be part of the expanse. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to go through the tunnel and go out to some new planet. <laughs> They're going to be belters. <laughs> to be belters. Yes, because Anderton, balding, old Anderton, definitely going to yeah. last out there on the belt. I'm, I'm sure he'll do just fine. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. 
I know I cut you off. I apologize. You were no, you were I can't even that. remember now. It's fine. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. So what I have left are my final thoughts and my trivia. Do you have anything else about themes or big things that you want to talk about before we do final thoughts and trivia? The last little thing I'd say, just in and uh, back to a part that I really liked about the movie was specifically the escape scene at the mall. First of all, we get a really great joke where they hook her up to the, they're in the booth and it's like the pleasure booth, right? Mm -hmm. And they hook her up and all of the feed is coming out really fast. And Tom Cruise says, slow it, slow it down. And he goes, what should I do? Hit her on the head? Yeah. (laughs) Which I I think is a funny line, Mm -hmm. but like the whole, as they're escaping, she's seeing everything about a minute and a half before it happens. So she's like, grab that umbrella. And then she tells the random stranger, don't go home. He knows. And then grab those balloons and then wait for a second. And then like, I love all of that thing so that they're able to escape because she knows that they need to escape. Mm-hmm. Like, like she knows that in order for her mother's murder to be solved, she needs to escape with Tom Cruise. And I think that's, that's really cool of her to be like clairvoyant enough, cognizant enough because uh, the drugs have kind of worn off that she knows that. Anyway, that's kind of the last thing that I've, you know, what's interesting, the last movie that you and I talked with, about was Push. And I'm pretty sure there was like a whole, somebody seeing what was about to happen. Oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. You know, escape scene in that movie too. And I think that this one was done way better than than that one. I mean, okay. the whole movie, yes. I, yeah, it's not a very Even fair Spielberg versus whatever, whoever directed whoever. that. <laughs> but yes, oh, that's just funny. So apparently we have a theme. We have a, we have a pattern, you and I. I'm going to do my little fun trivia things here. Okay. So when Spielberg originally signed on to direct, he planned to have an entirely different supporting cast. He originally offered the role of Danny to Matt Damon. Iris was offered to Meryl Streep. Lamar was offered to Ian McKellen and Agatha was offered to Kate Blanchett. And then later Jenna Elfman. I am very glad that they hit delays and none of those things happened personally. To do, do. There is a spinoff, The Minority Report. It was in 2015, a 13-episode that then got cut down to a 10-episode, so very short-lived TV show. The only cast person that continued that made the jump from the movie into that was Wally, Wally, Wally the caretaker. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And this is fun. This movie came out the same year as Spider-Man. And Star Wars Episode Mm 2, just to put it into sci-fi context. Okay. And then, because I like to do it, we have our Star Trek trivia. (laughs) Oh, you're not the only one. I I always have a Star Trek connection. Or not always, but I try to have a Star Trek connection. I try. Not everything works out. But So Fletcher, who's played by uh, Neil McDonough, McDonough? McDonough. who I first came into contact with as... um, David McNorris on Boomtown and he has beautiful blue eyes and I've seen in a whole bunch of stuff, including timeline. And wow, he's just, he's just a very good looking man. I even watched one of those stupid procedural shows where he was like working for like the medical examiner's office or the CDC or something. And he'd like go places with like, I don't know, chemical spills and whatever. I watched that show because of him. He was in Star Trek. He was Lieutenant Hawk in Star Trek first contact. So Mm -hmm. very cool. Also, one of the other pre-crime cops, Officer Knott, K-N-O-T-T, was played by Patrick Kirkpatrick, which is an 
awesome name. And he is a guest star who has starred in an episode of Star Trek Deep Space Nine and two episodes of Star Trek Voyager. So there, that is your Star Trek Connections. So, Sean, yeah. was this book worth your time? Was this movie worth your time? Well, yes and yes. I mean, not just the fact that the book took me about three hours to read. Uh, you, you warned me that it was a short story, and I said, I, it take, I don't have a lot of time to sit and read. And I, I did it in two sittings. Uh, and then I got done. I go, oh, that was it. I could have read much more. And I, might, I still have the book that has all the other ones, so I might jump into some of the other short stories. So yeah, the book is definitely worth my time. I, if you like the movie, I think you should watch, watch the book. You should read the book just to get a little bit of context and to kind of see how it is. I was trying to, because I was talking to my wife about it, I was trying to put into context, like if I had read this story a bunch of times in preparation for the movie, would I have been mad when the movie came out? <laughs> you know, like, because there's so many times, right? You read, you read the thing and like like Ready Player One is the most recent movie that I've watched based on a book and the movie suffers for it because I read the book first and I think the movie misses some of the point of the book entirely but yeah definitely definitely enjoyed the book and or the story and I like this movie a lot I think it's a lot of fun I think it's very rewatchable Go back and watch it a second or third time to see if you can't get some more of the clues. And, you know, there's some there's some really sweet moments in it, too. I totally agree. The story is a good idea. I don't really like Philip K. Dick's writing style, but I like a lot of his thoughts. So but it is it is a novella. It's not that long. It won't take that long. So but as for the movie, I love it. I love the style and the colors and the thoughts and the casting. I love even the little things like Jason Antoon as the futuristic, you know, pornographer guy. I like the lack of the minority report. There's actually no minority report in the movie minority report. It's just like this thing that he's chasing that doesn't actually exist. So it's kind of like this bait and switch in both title and scope. I think it's very clever and well done. My advice is to skip the short story unless you're already a Philip K. Dick fan or you're reading like short story collections or, you know, you know, you want to read something on a plane. Um, obviously then don't skip it but if you want all the best parts of the story with a lot of added stuff um, see the movie it'll take you almost as long to watch this two and a half hour movie as it will to read the read the book so it's all as I said before all good science fiction is really speculation about social and political trends and issues and it takes an idea to its like illogical extreme and this is really cool it's like film it's noir it's suspense it's cool. It's rewatchable. It's a lot of fun. I think it's surprisingly deep. I think this is one of my favorite Tom Cruise movies because I liked him and he was, it was, it was actiony enough, but it, yeah. The fact that he did this one right after vanilla sky is, is a little bit of a wow. Good for him. It's a, because vanilla sky, I think tried too hard and this one tries just enough. I really liked it. So that's what I think. And now you know. <laughs> now you know. The more you know. Exactly. So thank you so much for being here, Sean. <laughs> it was, was super fun. Definitely brought some cool stuff to it. And it was fun to talk to you. And tell all the people where they can find you and listen to the dulcet sounds of your voice in their ears 
talking about other movies. I've been called many things. I don't think having dulcet tones is one of them. I'm Sean from Cheap Seat Reviews. It's my podcast. Uh, we are the podcast that explores the Hollywood film industry for the greater good. The greater good. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> We're uh, tomorrow. I don't know when you'll air this episode, but as we record it tonight, tomorrow we will record our 350th episode. This episode will come out on the 21st of June. Okay. So, so yeah. So two weeks ago, we <laughs> aired our, our uh, 200, our 350th episode. Uh, in fact, we'll be getting ready to release episode two, two or three uh, fifty-three. Anyway, it doesn't matter. What matters is is cheap reviews. Libsyn l i b s y n dot com is our website. There you can find our social media links and basically links to all the other shows we've done or episodes, I should say, that we've done. And yeah, and it, it is kind of neat that we that we have some crossover episodes. Um, I listened to your episode on Enola Holmes, and you and I were 100% in agreement that the movie is kind of fun, but they kind of shit on uh, Sherlock a little bit <laughs> in, in the movie, and that kind of annoyed me. Well, not kind of. It, it did annoy me um, a bit. So. That's nice that you say that because... Um you should go back and listen to my episode on Ready Player One, where we will 100% not agree <laughs> on, based on what you just said about it. So you love the movie and hated the book? Uh, love is a very you, strong you word, Sean. the movie and disliked the book? I disliked the book a lot. I was like entertained enough with the movie that I was like, yeah, okay, nope. we watched it. And it, it was fun to watch with Matthew, you know, um, but... Well, I mean, I know. I think I'm actually close. Well, I'm with the movie. I think we're actually closer. I didn't hate the movie. I thought the okay. movie was very fun, oh. and it's very rewatchable, and it's very pretty. If you are the age that at least I am, not guessing on how old you are, that the '80s is still <laughs> like I'm old enough that I know the '80s, but barely. Right? Like I was born in '82, so the '80s to me is a thing that happened in the past, whereas. You know what we joke that our my co-host Sam, who's technically only about four years older than I am, but we like to joke that he's about forty years older than us. Um, you know, to him the '80s were more real. So the movie is a love letter to the '80s and 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 a little bit to Spielberg himself, though he even is quoted in saying that he didn't want to put too much of his own work in the movie, which I respect. But I I liked the book a lot, and I didn't read it. I I listened to it, and having Will Wheaton. With I Will Wheaton, yeah, cool. that probably made a difference. I, I just I hate Ernest Klein's writing style so badly; well, it was you, so distracting that I. You I are just, also a book critic and and have read ten thousand more things than I have. So I mean, I <laughs> honestly can't tell you of someone's writing style over another. The only person, the only book I've ever read that I hated reading was my I read the Twilight books because my wife asked me to and so I read <laughs> I'm sorry. I read the, I read the first and second one because I'm a good husband. But... You are a good husband. See, I nobody nobody asked me to do that. I read the first one so that I could properly shit on it because I feel like that's like the requisite. You have to have engaged sure. with media before you can properly judge it. And then I read the Wikipedia articles for the rest of the series so that I could know what happens, but I, I couldn't yeah. subject myself to but more of that. I, I don't writing. have, yeah. honestly, I, I don't, I couldn't tell you his writing style over another. I mean, I do know, and this is really funny. You'll laugh at this. 
So I was reading the collective, the, the entire Sherlock Holmes collection. So Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was writing these in the 1890s, 1880s. So that type of English is very different than the English we have now. So I would read one of his books, but to give my brain a break, I was also reading the Lightning Thief series, the Percy Jackson series. <laughs> Those are very different styles. And when you're reading them back to back, you can obviously tell because you know, Conan Doyle will spend a paragraph just describing the guy's face. Whereas in Percy Jackson, he describes it like a 13 year old would. The guy smelled like a dirty gym sock. <laughs> That's your description. That's all you get, you know? So, but, but to, back to your point specifically, I liked the book because I enjoyed it and I thought it was kind of neat. A lot of the references, but yeah, I don't, I couldn't tell you anything about his writing style that would annoy me or not. So, but you're not the first person. You're not the first person I've heard say that. Also, I'll say. I mean, you know, longtime listeners to this podcast have heard my rant, so they don't need to hear it again. <laughs> so, and if you are visiting us from the Cheap Seat Reviews <laughs> podcast, uh, go and find that that episode. It's several episodes ago. It was it was my very first time ever recording with Zoom, and I didn't have a good mic, and neither did my other person. So the sound quality for that episode was pretty shitty, but. But yeah, no, I, I think it was fun. My friend Keith and I talked about that. So, and I'm just to answer your unasked question, I'm actually older than you, but I do remember the 80s and I have a lot of nostalgia for the 80s. So there is that. <laughs> Not much older, by the way, just, just a little tiny bit. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Thank you. It's a very important distinction I'm making right there. <laughs> yeah, this was super fun. And I will link to your show's website and your facebook on the blog and stuff of the show notes of this episode thank you so people can find you very cool and then you need to come back and we'll have to pick some other book and movie and i'll give you a, a really big long lead-in so it can be a book next time sure what do you say sounds great <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm all for it well thank you so much this was a blast I, i'm so glad we did this perfect system he's could good this could decredit this could decredit. This, yeah. This could discredit the entire creep. This. <laughs> I got it. I got it. It's cool. This could discredit the entire pre crime system. Dun, dun, dun. Frank Grillo was in this movie. I didn't know that. That's cool. Your Punisher was in this. Working in uh, TV and film at the time. And I actually uh, had my phone. I forgot to, you know, put the on silent. And we were filming an, uh, a scene and literally they call cut. And then you start hearing, sit your big God starts playing. Right. And you know, the director looks over and I'm like, I'm so sorry. And I go, really? The sound guy forgot to turn his phone off. I'm like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't remember who called me, but it was, he was hilarious. So I was, they referred to me as they called me Kelly for a couple of days after that. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> I, I approve.